New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Peter Russell is an author and meditation teacher focusing on consciousness and spirituality. His studies include theoretical physics, mathematics, experimental psychology, and computer science. His principal interest is the deeper spiritual significance of the times we are passing through. His work seeks to distill the essence of the world's spiritual traditions and present them in ways relevant to current times. In 1982, he coined the term global brain with his bestseller of the same name, in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have. In today's dialogue, we'll be focusing on what is the new meta-paradigm? What is consciousness? What is prayer? and much more with our guest, Dr. Peter Russell. Peter Russell has many books, including Waking Up in Time, The Global Brain, The Brain Book, and From Science to God. Join us for the next hour as we explore the mysteries of the human mind and spirit with our guest, Dr. Peter Russell. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Peter, welcome. Love to be back with you. It's grand to have you back here and to sit across from you. Let's talk about the meta paradigm. Well, you, you mentioned that on your website and other places. What is a meta paradigm? Okay. Well, maybe we should start by looking at what is a paradigm. Good. Perfect. Let's start there. Uh, the word paradigm was coined by a, a historian of science, about 30, 40 years ago, looking at the basic ideas which underlies any particular science. So it's like, it's, it's a big theory. So in physics, relativity is like a paradigm. Before relativity, there was Newtonian physics. That's a paradigm. We could say um, DNA is a paradigm in molecular biology. It's a sort of big theory within which all research takes place. So what I mean by a meta-paradigm is the paradigm behind the paradigms themselves. So we've got a lot of different paradigms in science, but underneath them all is one much deeper mindset, worldview, and that is the, the idea that, the, that reality is basically space, time, matter, energy, and that 
consciousness, whatever consciousness is, somehow arises out of space-time matter energy. So when I'm when I say the meta paradigm, what I'm really referring to is the whole materialistic worldview in which all of science takes place. So what is our current one? If you could say well, I mean, yeah. the materialistic one is what's the current reigning paradigm. Right. Is that right? Meta paradigm. The meta paradigm, yes. The paradigm and, behind the paradigm. And so is there a problem with that? Yes. There's... <laughs> <laughs> a very big problem with it. So the current one is that the real world is the world of matter, the world we see around us, touch and feel, hear, the world that physics is investigating, that basically the universe is composed of matter, put it very simply. And consciousness somehow, in ways we don't understand, comes out of matter. And that's the big problem with it. For a start, there's nothing in our current worldview or in current physics that would predict consciousness should ever exist in the universe. And yet, the one thing we know for absolutely certain is that each of us is a conscious, aware being. In fact, that's all we know for certain is that I am aware. I mean, right now, we could be sitting in the matrix, being in a virtual reality, or we could be dreaming, whatever. But we couldn't doubt the fact that we are conscious. And when you say conscious, like we, oh, it's hard to kind yes. of grab it, isn't it? We know we are here feeling, perceiving, whether it's a matrix, whether it's virtual right. reality yes. or something solid. Yes. We really don't know that, but we do know that we know. We somehow. know that we know. We know that we are aware. We cannot doubt that we are actually experiencing something. So I use the words conscious and aware synonymously. Some people make a distinction. So maybe you know, an easier word is just to say, I am aware. You know, I am aware of you right now. I'm aware of my body. I'm aware of thoughts. I'm aware of what I'm saying. It's just experience is happening, we could say. It's as simple as that. So if I weren't aware... I wouldn't have an experience. So it's almost absolutely necessary for experience that we should be experiencing, that we should be aware. Peter, you have a, a certain take on the famous quote by Descartes that I think, therefore, I am. Yes. You look at that, what he was saying, a little bit differently than what I would probably think he was saying. Right. There's a common understanding. It's actually a misunderstanding of what he meant. Yes, the, the English translation is, I think, therefore I am. And when people first hear that, they think that what Descartes was saying was that because I am thinking, my thinking gives me a sense of me existing. And there, there is a truth in that, that a lot of the sense of I-ness that we have, me, Peter Russell, British, whatever, author, is part of my thinking. But he was pointing to something different. Like many philosophers, he was looking for truth, for the absolute truth. And he came up with this idea that whatever is absolutely true must be beyond any doubt. That was his definition of truth. It must be undoubtable. And he sat down one evening to consider, to meditate upon what was it that he could not doubt. And this is what we're talking now 250 years ago, even longer, actually. 
and he realized he could he could doubt his experience. He might be dreaming. He's had he said, you know, I've had times when I thought I was dreaming, I thought it was real, and then I woke up. This could be a dream, so I can actually doubt my experience at the moment. And he said, you know, I could I may not be actually seeing the world as it is. He said, I could have a demon in my mind giving me false impressions. And he went through all these possibilities. He could doubt any philosophy. He could doubt any of his ideas. And then he realized what he couldn't doubt was that he was doubting. He couldn't doubt the fact that he was having doubting thoughts. And therefore, he could not doubt the fact that he was thinking whether the thoughts were true or not, he could not doubt the fact that he was thinking. And therefore, because he was thinking, that proved that he existed. So I think, therefore I am. It's not that my thinking gives me a sense of existence, but my thinking proves that I am. And so he came to the conclusion that the one thing he could not doubt was, I am. So that's a more fundamental place of awareness than, let's say, the materialistic world, which may or may... I remember years ago, Bucky Fuller was talking about how when he grew up, he, he couldn't see very well. And they didn't know that about him as he was a little toddler. Mm. And somewhere, I don't know, he might have been four years old or something mm. like that, when they first fitted him with glasses. And and suddenly the world came into view in a very, very different way than he had ever experienced. And I think that that informed the rest of his life. Like What I see may not be exactly true. Yeah. Uh, I can't accept it as truth. And so it started him on his whole exploration of, of truth and what he could really stand on as is being true. And that's what you're talking about, aren't you? Yes. And I think what Descartes was pointing to is something we all know. That sense of I, I am, never changes. It's true for each of us. I mean, the, the, the sense of I am now that is here, it's my sense of being present in a way, my sense of beingness, is that same sense of I am as yesterday, as 10 years ago, it's that same sense that I had when I was a child or a teenager. My experiences have changed, my values, maybe my personality, all of that has changed. But that sense of I am is it's like that sort of thread that runs all the way through our life. And that thread, that feeling of I am never actually changes. So it's a truth in terms of it's the one thing we cannot doubt, but it is also, in a sense, an eternal truth. It is an unchanging truth about our lives. So, Peter, what does that have to do with um, meta-paradigm, the materialistic mindset meta-paradigm? Uh, how does that fit, or does it fit into that paradigm? Yes. Well, it, does, it doesn't fit into the current meta-paradigm, the current worldview, the materialistic worldview. And none of consciousness fits into that. As I was saying, there's nothing, nothing in the current worldview that predicts that any of the processing going on in the brain should ever result in a conscious experience. According to modern science, chemistry, physics, biology, it should all be going on as it does, but we should all be like unconscious robots, what philosophers sometimes call zombies, that they, they're not 
people who've come back from the dead, but they're actually people who look just like you and me, but there's nothing actually going on inside. And this is the big problem for science. Well, there's two, there's two problems with this worldview. Is how on earth does unconscious matter, we assume that matter is unconscious and therefore our brain cells, the blood vessels, whatever's going on, all the neurotransmitters, they're not conscious and the different parts of the brain, they aren't conscious. How is it that unconscious matter gives rise to experience? And what you have here is two completely different types of phenomena. You've got matter with all its processing and complexity and all the information that's going on. And then you have this thing called inner experience, the mind, subjective experience, which, as I say, in some senses is more true than the brain. I mean, I believe I have a brain. I haven't seen it, but I have every single reason to believe I have a brain. But, but my experience is what is true. So in, in that, we accept that we have that consciousness, but in science, it's not fitting quite there because they can't measure it. They, science likes to measure things right. and so forth and predict things. So can you give us an example of when something comes in, a new idea, let's say mm. the idea of consciousness, which is an anomaly yes. now yes. in science. Uh, if we could go back to that place when another anomaly kind yes. of appeared. So we want to talk about that as an example in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Peter Russell, and he is the author of From Science to God. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, peterrussell.com. And Russell is with two L's, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, peterrussell.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Peter Russell, and we're talking about meta-paradigms and consciousness. And Peter, I want you to describe, let's say, go back, what, 350 years ago or so, when Copernicus first was talking about a new view of the universe and our place yep. in it. And how did that work? How did that paradigm just like zoom through or what happened? This is a really good example of what happens with paradigms. And as Thomas Kuhn, the person who put forward the idea of paradigms, showed is that we don't let go of our 
of our ideas easily. We hold on to our ideas. You could say we're almost more attached to our beliefs about the world than anything else. So for thousands of years, really, the basic paradigm in physics, well, in astronomy, really, was that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything went around the Earth. The stars, the planets, all revolved around the Earth and the Earth was the center of the universe. And that, it had the appearance of that. It does. It still does. It did, mm -hmm. yeah. We see the sun going round. We see the stars <laughs> going round. So it's completely logical. There's nothing strange about that at all. And, of course, it fitted with the church's idea that we were the center of God's attention, so we were the center of the universe. But there were problems with that. And the problems were the planets. In fact, the Greek word planeta means to wander because the planets were stars that weren't always in the same place. They wandered around the sky. They moved through the constellations. Sometimes they moved backwards. And nobody could explain why this happened. And there were two parts of this paradigm. One was that the Earth was the center. The other part came from Plato, who said that the heavens are perfect. The perfect motion is circular motion. Therefore, everything in the heavens, i.e. all the stars, must move on circles. And you could see that all the fixed stars moved on circles. But the planets didn't seem to. So they worked out all these complex mechanisms of circles rolling around circles, rolling around other circles. And if they could just get all these circles rolling right, they could explain why the planets moved. And just, just to point out that the planets appear in the sky like a star. Yes. Except that they shine. I, I, this, I know they, they have a steady light rather than a kind of twinkling light. I yes. mean, that's one way you can tell the difference. But they weren't thinking about that at that time. No, they weren't thinking about that at that time. I, I don't know. They probably had their own explanation why some twinkled and some didn't. <laughs> yeah. But they were, they were trying to calculate the movements of the planets. And so they had these complex systems. And basically what they were doing was trying to explain the anomaly. What Kuhn said was there is an anomaly, something that doesn't fit. And... They tried to explain it in the old system. Copernicus came along and said, hey, you know, if we drop the idea that the Earth is at the center, if we make the sun at the center and the Earth is just another planet going around the sun, then things begin to look a lot simpler. But that would have been anathema to the church. And he didn't even dare publish his ideas till just before he died. And then it was another 70 years later that Kepler came along and said, hang on. It's not circles, it's ellipses. When he realized the orbits were ellipses, it all began to make sense. At the same, very much the same time, Galileo was looking through his telescope up at the planets. He was looking at Venus, and he also looked at Jupiter, and he saw Jupiter had moons, and Venus was, he could see Venus was going around the sun, not around the Earth. But the bishops at the time refused to look through his telescope. They knew this was rubbish. We said, why should we, we know this isn't true. Why should we even bother to look through your telescope? And it was about another 60, 70 years later that Isaac Newton came along and did all the mathematics and show how, how it all worked. So the point about this is it took 150 years for the new paradigm to really settle in. And initially, the proponents are, they're dismissed or they're ridiculed. People don't want to accept the new idea, but finally it does get accepted. It takes some brave soul to put forward a new idea. So that's the basic process. And there's a point at which we question our fundamental assumptions. And so the fundamental assumptions with the old view was there were two, that the earth was the center 
and that everything moved on circles. When we questioned those assumptions, then we were able to develop a new model that now explains things much, much more accurately. So bringing us up to this time in place, uh, do you feel we're kind of at some part of the story now that there's enough people there to say, wait a minute, there's an anomaly here, and but we don't quite know how to explain it yet. Is that where we are? We're approaching that point. I think in the current what I call the meta-paradigm, the, the big paradigm, the big worldview behind everything, we're saying that the, the real world is the material world and consciousness somehow comes out of it. And as we said, there's a lot of problems with that. And so we have an anomaly, an anomaly staring us in the face, the fact that we are conscious and there's absolutely no way to explain it. And so people are beginning to, just a few people at the moment, it's not widespread, it's like the sort of the early Copernicus days, where there's not just one Copernicus was in a in a much larger society, but many individuals are beginning to say, hang on, maybe we have to challenge our fundamental assumption and say that consciousness is not something that is created by the brain, but maybe consciousness is something that is there in all creatures, in all systems. But because we have such a we have the most complex brain. And so we have the most, the rich, most complex consciousness. And so it's saying that consciousness does not arise out of matter, but consciousness is already there. And in saying this, we need to make a distinction between the fact that the brain clearly gives rise to what you experience. And if I'm thinking a certain thought, we could probably track down in the brain what was happening. If I'm Seeing, seeing this room, we can track down in the visual cortex what is happening. So it's absolutely clear that what goes on in the brain determines what appears in consciousness. But now people are saying the brain doesn't create awareness itself. The awareness is already there. What the brain does is feed the experience into awareness. And and in now brain science and neuroscience, I mean, it's a big deal these days, and they think they figured it all out, and that this is where consciousness resides, and this is why it why it does yes. because you see these little firings going off and pinging and lighting up, and they're saying that explains it. Right, and I think this is because they confuse the two questions. Certainly. You know, we are. I would say we're not. We're just beginning, just beginning to understand the brain, and you know what's firing when we have certain experiences. We have a long, long way to go. This is called in philosophy the easy question of consciousness: is actually understanding what goes on in the brain. And maybe fifty, hundred years time, we will actually understand the brain that well. But then the hard question in philosophy is: why is there experience at all? Why does all this firing of neurons give rise to experience? And it's certainly true. If you disable certain parts of the brain, then consciousness may change, may even disappear. But it doesn't prove the brain is creating it. It just shows that the brain is no longer um, putting input into consciousness. Well, that just gives rise. Like we, we have a lot of answers to how things work. How mm. kind of a little bit about how the brain, how the body works, and so forth and so on. But we we don't know those the primary cause like why are we here for what purpose are we here that 
those are some of the questions that, again, it goes to the why questions rather mm -hmm. than the how questions. Yes. We're good at the how questions. Yes, very good at those. Most of them, not all of them, but yeah. most of them. But the why questions then become perturbing. Mm -hmm. And so how what I, I'm wondering, let's say in evolution, what is that here's a why question. Whoa, sort of why. What is that magical moment when mad when out of out of our lives we become as a species self-aware? What is that? Was it always right. there? Did it always exist? Or right? Well, there's again have to separate this into two questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm saying, I'm suggesting, and, and a growing number of people are coming around to this that the capacity to be aware is there in all creatures. You know, even you know a simple worm, it has a tiny, tiny bit of awareness, but not nothing at all. Even down to a bacterium, wherever there's life, there is the potential for being aware. And so what has happened as life has evolved and we've developed better senses, more complex nervous systems, a cortex to really process the information much better. So what appears in consciousness has evolved you know, so that now I'm having this experience of you, you know, we are sitting here, I've got 3D, full color, surround sound, touchy-feely, complete experience with my own body sensations. A worm doesn't have that. It might have very vague sensation of its body or something. So what has evolved is what I often call the contents of consciousness, what appears in awareness. Then self-awareness is a particular mode of awareness that probably only human beings have in the way that we have it, which is basically being aware that we are aware. I mean, I believe a dog is aware. A dog is experiencing. Clearly, we think a dog feels pain. We wouldn't give it an anesthetic to make it unconscious if we didn't think a dog was feeling pain, that it was conscious. But I don't think a dog is sitting there saying, hey, this is fascinating. I'm actually aware of my experience. Isn't this interesting? I think only human beings. I say I think because who knows what's happening with, you know, maybe whales. And yeah, that's the, that's a big one because they're, they're a big brain. Or they're a bigger brain than us, and that's a whole other question. They're fascinating creatures. But just say for the moment, you know, the only creatures we know of that have self-awareness is human beings, which means I am aware of being aware. And, and in that comes that sense of there is an I that is aware. We come back to the I am. We, we recognize that, that sense of I am, which is always there. I don't think a dog recognizes that sense of I am that's always there. But I think this is what makes human beings special, is that we have this ability to reflect back upon our own awareness. And now that, that brings us to a more spiritual question. And I, I think I picked up someplace in your writings something about um, human beings may be the only ones who bury their dead. Uh, the only species, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a correct statement, but I, I know elephants have like graveyards, but they don't actually bury the bones of their relatives, mm -hmm. so to speak. But so this is like the emergence of something that is 
spiritual in nature. Yes, it? yes. And I'm glad you used the word emergence because I don't think it's a sudden thing. You know, we know that elephants will recognize themselves in a mirror and so will dolphins and so will chimpanzees and a few other creatures. You show them a mirror and they, they know this is me. That so That's like it's the beginning of self-awareness, beginning to happen. So I don't think any of these things are a sudden flash that happens. It's a gradual emergence. And so you see this with, with the higher mammals. There's this recognition of themselves in a mirror. But that isn't the same, I don't think, as the A saying, hey, here I am being aware, which I think is partly the fact that we can think and reflect upon our experience. We're going to go more into this in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Peter Russell. He's the author of From Science to God. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Peter Russell, and he's the author of From Science to God. And we're talking about self-awareness, and I brought up the idea that humans, so far as we know, are the only species that buries their dead. And this brings us into a kind of emergence of some sort of spirituality. Yes. I think... We were talking about also the fact that we, we recognize that we are aware. And I think within that, we also begin to recognize that other creatures are aware. And so when I see you, I know that how it feels for me to be aware. And I see you as a fellow human being. And I know that you have your own awareness and your own sense of I am. And so there's a respect for you as a conscious being. And I think this is where burial rituals and things come from is... Well, I think when you die, what's going to happen to that sense of beingness that you know? And I think that's probably where the rituals came from. We had maybe some primitive idea in an afterlife or something like that. Whereas you mentioned elephants and other creatures will honor their dead. I mean, we know dolphins do that, elephants do that. A lot of animals do that. They'll, they'll honor the dead and elephants will you know, stay with the dead for a little while and, and then they leave them eventually. So there is that honouring of the dead, but I think we, we go a step further. I don't think an elephant, I don't know, I don't think it imagines as an elephant afterlife, which the, the elephant has gone to, but there's still nevertheless that resonance. So I think it's just this emergent thing of recognising that in a way we all share consciousness, we're all conscious beings, and we all have this sense of being an individual aware being. So I think I think that's where these things come from, and that's, that to me is really the beginning of spirituality is and by spirituality i'm not meaning religion for me they're very different but the the beginning to explore what it means to be aware i would say the spiritual path is the path of looking at one's own awareness exploring awareness exploring how we get caught up in our thought systems or whatever and ultimately, coming back to the recognition of the I am that is the essence of our awareness, I think that's where most spiritual paths are pointing us to in, in the end, is, is that recognition of our own self. 
Well, let's talk about that concept of I am. And what does that have to do with the concept of God? I am in God. No, no, you're laughing. uh, No, I'm not laughing. I'm smiling uh, because it's a deep, fascinating question. I'm smiling because we need another two hours. Well, a lot of us, I know, I wish we did have the two hours. A lot of us are looking at uh, maybe we grew up with a kind of concept of God as outside of ourselves and some sort of creative force and. And a lot of us have been grappling with that idea and even even just dismissing the word God altogether yeah. and throwing it out and then bringing it back in. I'm, I'm of course, describing myself here. And me. <laughs> and so we're, we're grappling with this, and, and you have some uh, ideas about mm-hmm. what that is and who God is. Yes, I would say not the who. Not the who, right? I was as soon as I said it, I thought, no, 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 right. that's not the right right, right. phrase. Yes, I, I too. I mean, when I was thirteen, I rejected the whole idea of there being some old man with a beard up in the sky or any being up there looking over us, monitoring us. It just didn't seem to make sense with my pursuit of modern science. So I, I completely rejected religion with that, and then later I began to see that. There was something here that people were talking about. It wasn't the being a father figure or something like that, but what they're referring to was maybe the simplest way to put it is the essence of the universe. There was some deep, deep essence to the universe. And for me, that essence is to do with awareness. I was saying, you know, the one thing, not the one thing, but I feel all all beings, all creatures have that glimmering of awareness. With us, it's very strong, but it's there all along. So I would actually posit that the that which is common to everything is being aware, that that is the essence of the universe is actually awareness, which ties in with many spiritual, shamanic traditions, you know, where they talk about the great spirit or the great being or pure consciousness, or in Indian thought, they talk about Brahman being the source of all. But all of these posit that ultimately the universe itself has consciousness or is I, conscious. I have to ask at this point, if when you say all all, all the universe is aware, I, and I'm the, my immediate thought was, well, what about rocks? Are rocks aware of themselves? Is a mountain aware of itself? Is a river aware of itself? No. Okay, what's the... I, I mean, I'm saying even a dog isn't aware of itself. Okay, okay, all right. This is helpful. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying there's... And it's not that rocks have experiences or feelings or thoughts or anything like that. I'm not, probably not even sensing their environment. But if we... If we say there's nowhere we can draw the line, and this is one of the problems with the current worldview, is that if you say consciousness comes out of matter and you say, well, maybe you know, worms are conscious, but something simpler than a worm isn't, you have to say, what is it about the worm that allows this magic thing to happen of awareness suddenly coming into being? Or if it's between you know, mammals and fish, what is it about mammals that's different from fish? Wherever you draw the line, you come up again against the hard problem of how does consciousness suddenly appear almost by magic out of nowhere. So where people are going in their thinking is, is a view which is called panpsychism, 
which means basically psyche, mind, is in all. Everything has this aspect. Everything has an interior aspect. But what takes place in the mind is a reflection of the complexity of the system. So a rock is a very, very simple crystalline structure. So if we're saying a bacterium has a faint sense of consciousness, maybe one billionth of ours, a bacterium is a highly complex system compared to a piece of crystal. So the consciousness of a bacterium would be a billion times greater than that of a rock or a piece of crystal. What we're saying is it's not totally devoid of that, some people call it proto-consciousness. It's not, it doesn't suddenly arise, but the seeds of it go all the way back. But it's not to say that rocks are conscious in the way that we think of consciousness. So there's not like that clear delineation, this is conscious, this isn't. It's kind of on a continuum of complexity in some right. way. And I think you can draw a parallel here. It's not even a parallel. It's a very close relationship between consciousness and life. You know, we look back, we see that, you know, we say a bacterium is alive because it performs certain function. What about a virus? You know, that's a gray area. A virus does reproduce itself. It follows some of the principles. But a virus of- seems to have intelligence because it can, it can uh, evolve itself to cope with the different environmental yes. things coming at it. Let's say, for example, antibiotics. And then it kind of mutates into right. something that then goes around that right. antibiotic. Right. So, yes, it does have intelligence. And it's in some ways, it's a living system, but it's not a full living system. And so we go back further. You know, proteins, they have some intelligence, the way they structure themselves. You know, there's nowhere we can draw the line. We can see that at a certain stage, we recognize it as life. But we could say that capacity for life goes all the way back, but only when we see certain levels of complexity do we recognize it as life. And the same with awareness. Only when we see it reaching a certain degree of complexity do we say, oh, there's awareness there. I'm reminded of something that Carl Sagan once said uh, when someone asked him about how can we bake an apple pie or something like that? How can we make an apple pie? And he started to say, well, the way to make an apple pie then is, and he started going backwards and backwards until he said, well, you have to discover the universe in order to to know how to make an apple pie. And mm. that's what you're talking about, is that going back to the protein and... and yeah. uh, how far back do we go? <laughs> well, I think we have to go all the way back and to say that the that capacity for experience is part of the cosmos. Uh, but only at certain levels of complexity do we begin to see it emerging. So it isn't something that is created from matter, coming back to where we started, it isn't created from matter. It's there along with matter all the way. And only as we get more and more complex, we begin to see the consciousness appearing, becoming noticeable. Is it, does it have something to do, Peter, with energy? Like, I, I think mm. of energy not as material, but as some sort of, well, for me, mm. as a non-scientist, as some sort of magical uh, vibration in the cosmos. 
and mm-hmm. and so it, does it have something to do with that? And what is energy? Ah, uh, <laughs> the short answer is no one knows. That's just it's great. A, it's I a love way of, it. We don't, you know, we we measure these phenomena. We give them names like energy. We know how to measure it. But you ask any, you know, deep physicist, what is energy? We don't really know. What is time? We don't really know. What is space? We don't really know. What is matter? We don't really know. And this is fascinating. And it's like, these are all concepts we have which work, and we can measure it all, and we can understand. But what they are in essence, we don't actually know. So, and what is interesting, these are all concepts in the mind. And so here we are with, you know, we're saying, what is consciousness? Looking for it out there. You know, what, what I know is that I am conscious and I'm having these ideas of energy and matter. I mean, it's, this is the, almost the irony that all of science takes place in the mind, and yet science ignores the mind. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely. There it is. That's, that's <laughs> it. Uh, it all takes place in the mind and science ignores the mind. It's like, uh, well, let's not go there because it, that's just... Too complex and too unknowing. Right. It actually goes back to Descartes. Uh-huh. Descartes um, said that he called them he called the natural philosophers that we explore nature, we explore the natural world, and he didn't want to tread on the toes of the church because people were getting burnt and things for saying things the church didn't like. So he said, we natural philosophers will explore nature. We will measure nature. We will leave the world of the spirit to the church. You know all about the spirit. We're not going to tread on your toes. You, the church, look after the spirit. We will measure nature. And that division has sort of persisted really almost down to current times. And then I think today, there's two things. One, what we've been mentioning, the whole neurophysiological research that's going on is bringing up this question right in front of us. Well, what is consciousness? How does consciousness relate to the brain? But also developments in modern science, in relativity and quantum theory in particular, show that somehow consciousness is actually important. The way we observe the world affects the way the, way the world is. Does that have something to do with our point of view? Yes. Yes. Well, yes. let's let's get to that in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Peter Russell, and he is the author of From Science to God. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, peterrussell.com. And Russell is R-U-S-S-E-L-L, peterrussell.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Peter Russell, and he is the author of From Science to God. We were talking about the moment where we still are, but uh, hundreds of years ago, it was science said, we'll take care of this part, the natural sciences or natural mm-hmm. philosophers, and the church will take care of this part, and that was that split. Right. And we're still somewhere there. Yeah. And so this, and I mentioned, it, it's, it's a matter of shifting our point of view, maybe, mm. is what is being required at this time, possibly. Right. yes. And I think, and this is something which actually is coming out of modern physics, is our point of view, it actually determines how we see reality. And I think the point of view we need, the shift we need to make, and what we've been talking about is this, seeing that the world is much more than meets the eye. It's much more than the material world. And I think when we begin to include consciousness, what's interesting, it doesn't change anything that happens in physics or mathematics. All of science is completely safe. But for me, it gives us a much greater sense of awe about creation. That you know, If this is a living, conscious universe that we are part of, then it's like, wow, and this is how it is appearing to me. And and coming back to another point we were touching on just before, we were saying how, how this ties in with religion and spirituality, that if the essence of everything is awareness, is consciousness, that that is there in everything, then the way I touch into that in myself is as I become aware of my own awareness, as I touch into that essence in myself, I am touching into the essence of all creation, that my essence is the same as your essence, the same as a dog's essence, even if it isn't aware of it, but that essence of awareness that's always there. And I think this is where that statement, I am God, that we touched on earlier, I think this is where it comes from. It's not that I, Peter Russell, am the guy who created the universe. If you say that, you you get burnt at the stake. Today, you just get put inside a mental hospital and given (laughs) drugs until you keep quiet. It doesn't mean that at all, but the the people who make those sorts of statements are the mystics who've gone deep within themselves, explored their own consciousness, which I think is the, the inner science, is looking at our own consciousness, looking at the essence of our own being, and in that, recognizing that my essence is the essence of everything, that conscious, that essence of consciousness is the same essence of you and everything else. And I think that's where that statement comes from. It's recognizing that that inner sense of beingness that I feel is actually the beingness of the whole cosmos. I know that you do a workshop called Effortless Being, I think. Is Effortless it? Being. Yes, and in that, is this what you cover in there to, to go to that that essence quality of ourselves that's connected with all life that that makes us part of the whole creative process of the universe, I guess, is the, the words that I'm coming up with. Is that something that you would cover, that, that you try and help us to get down to that basic essence, to know that that's within? Yes, and I think we we all know that it's within i mean but we don't we're not in touch with it and that's where the effortlessness comes in that in our culture we're always not always most when make effort if you're not succeeding try harder 
And so we try to experience our own beingness. I think what all the great traditions are saying is when you stop trying, when you just allow your mind to relax, allow the attention to relax, we drop back into our own beingness. And so part of the workshop is learning to let go of any effort, let go of any trying. And actually, in letting go of the trying, we begin to drop back into just noticing that quality of I am that is always there, that sense of being, that sense of presence. And it's interesting, I am is actually the first person of the verb to be. You know, I am, you are, it is, is the verb Uh to be. So when we talk about being, the first person experience of being is I am. Well, that just takes me back to a, a Bible phrase um, that suggests the, the words of Jesus, and it's the basis of a lot of, uh, at least Christian religions, uh, yeah. where Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and all those, you you need, what, what is it, you need to come through me to the Father, right. something I'm interpreting it, so, so that... That phrase is like a lot of people would say, oh, that we have to believe in Jesus as the man Jesus or the mm. cosmic Christ Jesus or whatever they're calling it, yes. the resurrected one, to know life. And you have maybe a different view of that. Yes, the way I would see that is that coming back to that sense of I am is the truth. As we were saying earlier, it's the one truth that's always there is I am. Because he started that phrase with I am the way, the truth, right. and the life. Yes. And so I am, knowing the I am is the way. That's the path. I think this is what many traditions point to, to know who I am, know thyself, to know the I am. That is the way. That is the truth. That is the essence of life, is that I amness. That is the essence of everything. And only through getting in touch with one's own essence in that way, does one get in touch with the Father, the essence of all creation? So, Peter, if just to put that on a practical scale, right. why is it advantageous for me to be in touch with that essence of my I amness? Because... That essence of I amness is ultimately the seat of joy, happiness. We are free there from fear, from stress. So much of our life, our activity is going out chasing though that inner quality of peace, freedom, joy, love. We are chasing it out there in the world. When you recognize that all of that resides in that I amness, then we are freed from unnecessary chasing it in the world. So it frees us up from a lot of unnecessary dysfunctional activity. So in other words, that we have this, we want to acquire things to make us happy, and you're saying it actually resides inside us in yes. this moment. Yes. Right now. Yes, it does in the sense that when we, when we let go of the thinking, let go of the seeking, what we notice is there's a deep sense of contentment. I would put it this way. There's a deep inner sense of contentment. And this is the natural mind, the state of mind we're in when everything is okay, there's no threat, there's no need. 
But what happens is we are so busy seeking, looking for things, wanting things, trying to make things happen, that that clouds our mind. And we don't notice that what we're looking for is there all along if we could just stop looking, if we could just stop the seeking. That's not to say there's not a lot of things we need to do to keep our lives. You know, we need to look after ourselves, clothe ourselves, feed ourselves, have a reasonably comfortable life. But there's a lot of things we do which we're doing purely because we think if we got enough of this, we'd be happy. And the recognition that actually I can be content inside if I let go of a lot of this unnecessary thinking, wanting, planning, scheming, this is actually obscuring that natural state of contentment. We are then free in a whole new way. Uh, and, and we're living in a, in a time of, some would say, mass distraction that just taking us, uh, you, I mentioned that you predicted the internet, you know, and you, and, and you, here we are. I mean, we are just, you know, on all of our cell phones and our computers, and we're just like massively distracted from that mm. part of us that is our essence. So what advice do you have for us? <sighs> to... Take time for ourselves. I think this because all these things soak up our time. We get seduced by them, by the computers, by the email, the whatever it is, the social media. To actually take a little control back of our own lives and to to take time to stop, to pause, to just get in touch with what we've been talking about. Get in touch with our own beingness, that sense of presence. To relax into the moment. Be here now. There's many ways of putting it, but I think they're all pointing in the same direction of pausing and just tasting how it actually feels to be an alive being in this moment. I did a, a little, you have on, on your website someplace, uh, a, a little three-minute meditation. It was just marvelous, <laughs> Peter. I just, you know, I thought, okay, we, we all want to do our hour-long meditation. <laughs> but the reality is that we we get seduced yes. into everything. And so you had this three-minute meditation, and I took it, and I did it, and I, oh, man, it was so refreshing. I loved it. So Yes. Uh, I would say, you know, doing 10 three-minute meditations a day is much better than, than one 30-minute. Yep, yep. Yep. That's lovely. That's lovely. Well, um, Peter, I, we could just talk about so many other things, but um, we've run out of time, and I just want to thank you for all the work that you do and bringing us these ideas and stimulating us. Uh, we didn't get to storytelling and prayer. You have ideas about prayer and and uh, synchronicity and all sorts of things. So people can discover some of these on your website with your many blogs and your mm -hmm. many essays. So I encourage people to look it up. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely to be with you again. Really enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you. I've been here with Dr. Peter Russell, and he is the author of many books, Waking Up in Time, The Global Brain, The Brain Book, and From Science to God. And if you want to know more about his work, I suggest you go to his website, peterrussell.com. And Russell is R-U-S-S-E-L-L. PeterRussell.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to
to New Dimensions. This is program number 3537. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.